Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to welcome our uh, viewers and listeners uh, to another in our session of interviews with the uh, experts. Uh, my name is Malcolm Bell. I'm the uh, vice chair for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here in Rochester. And I'm delighted to have my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Les Cooper, uh, join us uh, today uh, to talk about what's new in myocarditis in terms of diagnosis and treatment. Les is a professor of medicine. He's the chair of the Department of uh, Cardiology uh, in our uh, sister side of Jacksonville in Florida. And he is a particular uh, expert uh, in uh, myocarditis of all aspects uh, and re recognized internationally for his expertise here. So welcome, uh, Les. Malcolm, thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. There's clearly a lot we can discuss about myocarditis, you know, in terms of the epidemiology, presentation, uh, diagnosis, treatment, but really just going to focus uh, on imaging and the uh, the treatment of this uh, in, in our discussion today. So let's just start with the uh, question of cardiac imaging. We've got a patient that, you know, we suspect him may have myocarditis and you know, very you know, routinely echocardiography is used in this. And then, you know, some patients, you know, where we're trying to rule out an acute myocardial infarction, your coronary angiography may be performed in, in selected patients. But let's get back to the echo uh, because it is routinely used in these patients. And so what are we looking for there that would help us in the diagnosis of myocarditis? So beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, echocardiography was used widely to define myocarditis and other forms of cardiomyopathy. And it turned out that there are strong prognostic variables, including left and right ventricular ejection fraction that predict major adverse cardiac events in myocarditis, as well as, as many other forms of cardiomyopathy. However, there's not anything very specific on echocardiography for myocarditis. And that led in the late 1990s to the use of cardiac MRI, which could provide tissue characterization. So you brought up cardiac MRI, and that's clearly something we uh, we need to discuss, and I think our uh, audience will be very interested in hearing. So what, what is the role for cardiac MRI in these patients? And, and maybe... Maybe just start off saying, what are you looking for in cardiac MRI that's going to help you uh, in the diagnosis of someone with uh, presumed or suspected myocarditis? Cardiac MRI has been evolving over the last two decades. We wrote the Lake Louise 1 criteria in 2009 and Lake Louise 2 in 2018, specifically looking for acute lymphocytic myocarditis. Generally, that's a post-viral syndrome. And those uh, criteria currently require both a T1-weighted, uh, which would be like delayed enhancement, or a T2-weighted native uh, mapping or imaging sequence to make the diagnosis of acute and presumed viral or, or idiopathic myocarditis. Of course, there are many other causes of myocarditis, most recently COVID and vaccine-associated myocarditis that we have been extrapolating from the original criteria to assume that those patterns of inflammation, generally epicardial and generally infraposterior, are relevant to these novel mechanisms. I'd emphasize 
that genetic cardiomyopathies such as desmoplakin or aplacophyllin mutations and those associated with cardiac sarcoid or giant cell myocarditis are a bit different than the routine findings we see in viral myocarditis. The actual findings that on MRI, I mean, you, you talked about some anatomical locations that might point you know, to a specific cause, but what exactly are you looking for uh, on yes. these MRI images? In the acute setting, which would be less than two to three weeks of from symptom onset, we look for matched increase in water-sensitive sequences, such as T2 mapping or, or bright white areas on, on T2 imaging, combined with an increase in delayed enhancement sequences. Generally, these are on the outside of the heart, the epicardium, which is different than with ischemia, which would be more on the endocardium and moving outward. So it is a distinct pattern for non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And with the T2-weighted imaging, it's more specific for myocarditis. In fact, the area under the curve is greater than, than 90.9 for uh, the combination of T1 and T2-weighted imaging. So if we just stay with the acute presentation of myocarditis, what is the sensitivity and specificity of cardiac MRI in diagnosing myocarditis? You already talked about the lack of specificity with echo findings. They approach 90%, but that is only true in the first few weeks of illness. Once you get out beyond about one to three months, the uh, signals uh, return toward a baseline and the accuracy of cardiac MRI for acute myocarditis goes pretty far down. However, I would say the prognostic value of an MRI, I think, remains true. And in addition to the ejection fraction, which you get on echo, the tissue area of delayed enhancement is prognostically important. It's been demonstrated in multiple studies for uh, specific forms like cardiac sarcoid, for example, uh, where you have higher degrees greater than about 7% of the myocardium is if it's uh, involved with delayed enhancement is associated with a greater risk of arrhythmias or heart failure. So it sounds though then that you know we should be doing cardiac MRI routinely in anyone we're suspecting of acute myocarditis in the uh, in that acute setting. It may be yes. difficult to employ, of course, in someone with fulminant myocarditis, you know, who's in yes. intensive care on a ventilator, presumably then we're looking for opportunities to do that in, in follow-up. Is that generally your experience? And, and again, the recommendation yes. for doing this routinely otherwise? That is correct. So, so all the current scientific papers, the position papers from the European and U.S. literature recommend that in the setting of, of suspected acute myocarditis that's stable hemodynamically, not requiring mechanical circulatory support or, or inotropes, as you mentioned, or ventilator or lots of arrhythmias, that uh, you proceed with an MRI, ideally within the first few weeks. On the other hand, if it is an unstable or fulminant presentation where you're in the unit, you're, you've got lots of ventricular arrhythmias, you've got instability, which would make the image acquisition less accurate and risky for the patient, that in that setting, it's safer to go on toward biopsy and then delay MRI until a time when it's feasible and safe. That's a good segue into my next question, uh, and uh, well, actually, next two questions. So, in terms of the findings that you, so let's say you don't have a patient who's got fulminant myocarditis and is unstable in, in the intensive care, you do cardiac MRI, MRI. 
Do you use that as a tool to guide who then you might want to perform endomyocardial biopsy? Diagnosis is going to be sufficient from you know the clinical presentation and what you see on cardiac MRI. So the indications for biopsy are based upon clinical presentation and, and not upon imaging uh, specifically on, bi on MRI. For example, in a patient with an acute non-ischemic cardiomyopathy who has hemodynamic instability, meaning they're inotrope dependent or they need mechanical support, or they've got uh, life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias or high-grade heart block, that is a class one indication for an endomyocardial biopsy. That has been since uh, the 2007 scientific statement came out, and it re remains in, in, uh, to this day. In addition, I think there are specific times, for example, if there is a, uncertainty about myocarditis in the setting of checkpoint inhibitor therapy, where uh, that's a very significant diagnosis. It would the the cancer treatment is often life saving, and withholding it could be uh, mean advanced cancer. That's where you really do need to know whether the diagnosis is correct. So there are a few specific circumstances outside of that fulminant hemodynamically unstable circumstance where you might want a biopsy. So let's just stay on that uh, fulminant uh, unstable myocarditis patient for for a moment. So there's that patient in intensive care who's you know just presented, they're in shock. Is, is there a role for immediate steroids before you've even uh, you know, taken the patient to the cath lab for, for a biopsy? That's a question that hasn't been answered in a rigorous way. Many of us would feel that a, a gram of solumedrol is safe. Often on a weekend or an evening, it's not feasible to, to bring in a cath lab and get a cardiac pathologist. And so uh, we would proceed that way. However, that's being studied in a clinical trial called the MYTHS trial. It is headed out of Milan, Italy, and they are enrolling sites currently in Spain, the Netherlands, and, and Italy in that multi-center trial, which is looking at a gram of solumedrol uh, once a day for three days for fulminant myocarditis, randomized trial. So let's move away from that uh, patient who has fulminant myocarditis, the unstable patient, and someone you know, who's still, and again, I just want to focus on the acute presentation, um, or it could be within that first year or week or so. And in terms of uh, you know, diagnosis, I mean, you brought up the, uh, you know, the complication of uh, checkpoint uh, inhibitors, uh, you mentioned giant cell myocarditis. What are going to be the specific treatments you might offer for those? And I guess another disease meal would be sarcoid that, that you may pick up at some point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In the last decade, uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors like nivolumab, for example, have taken a, a really important role in cancer therapy. A small percentage between 1 in 300 and 1 in 100 patients may get myocarditis as a consequence of uh, down-regulating T-regulatory cell function. And that is, is very important because myocarditis in that setting has a high rate of, of serious heart failure, arrhythmias, and heart block with about a, a third mortality. In that setting, the clinical treatment depends on how severe the disease is. In those patients who have a not, an asymptomatic increase in troponin, the recommendation from ASCO is to hold treatment and recheck the troponin. It, it may be reasonable to rechallenge with the same or a different therapy. In those patients, in contrast, who are symptomatic, if they've got heart failure, if they've got clinically symptomatic arrhythmias, the recommendation is to proceed with solumedrol, uh, milligram per kilogram, one to two milligrams per kilogram, and then consider adding a, another agent. 
the sicker patients, those in the intensive care unit who are developing high-grade heart block, the recommendation is not only solumedrol, but another agent, something like abatacept. And with John cell myocarditis? Yes. Yep. So we've known since the late 1990s that uh, calcineurin inhibitor therapy directed at T-cell inflammation is helpful in prolonging time to transplant or preventing death in patients with giant cell myocarditis. Those original studies uh, were a bit confounded because muromonab CD3 or OKT3 was used in a number of cases, and that is no longer available. The current recommendation for giant cell, which is biopsy-proven, is to go with the same steroid regimen recommended for checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, which is that gram of solumedrol once a day for three days with a steroid taper, followed by a calcineurin inhibitor like cyclosporin. And in addition, in the unstable patients, consider a third lytic agent like antithymocyglobulin or CAMPATH. In the past, I mean, in the last few decades, you know, those studies are looking at, uh, you know, treatment of you know, I mean, immunotherapy and just you know, general you know, myocarditis, I mean, rather disappointing. When we get back to talking about your biopsies, um, we're looking for more than just sort of uh, evidence of inflammation. And obviously, there's an immunologic and immunohistochemical things you should be looking mm-hmm. for. So presumably, that's really led to a greater understanding of uh, the inflammatory response in, in the heart. Yes. So where are we now then with the treatment of, let's say, it looks like lymphocytic myocarditis um, mm-hmm. in, in patients? I mean, obviously, we're, we're still providing supportive care for heart failure and arrhythmias, but uh, are, are there treatments uh, available now or on the horizon, or is that something mm-hmm. that's still being studied? It is being studied. So going back to 1995 with the negative myocarditis treatment trial that showed that cyclosporin or azathioprine with steroids did not prolong, improve ejection fraction or prolong survival in patients with acute lymphocytic myocarditis. There was uh, generally a lack of of studies for the next decade or so. The focus uh, was on specific causes. And those today, which change management are cardiac sarcoid in the right clinical context, giant cell myocarditis, checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, or uh, the drug reaction uh, of eosinophilic myocarditis. For lymphocytic myocarditis, that is an area under investigation. Uh, There are several ongoing clinical trials, one out of Canada by Cardiol Rx is studying pharmacologic grade CBD. Another uh, is uh, looking uh, at uh, specific monoclonal antibodies to prevent major adverse events in acute lymphocytic myocarditis. So, or but and that can be diagnosed by MRI or by biopsy in those studies. This is really fascinating. Les, is there anything else you want to add before we uh, close up here? No, I just uh, encourage the audience to remain aware. Uh, We have updated uh, information on the Myocarditis Foundation website. It's updated regularly, www.myocarditisfoundation.org. And please keep up with the literature. It's evolving quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear, you know, from this discussion here, there's been significant progress in understanding, you know, the mechanisms here. And you've uh, highlighted a number of, you know, novel causes of myocarditis and specific treatments for that. And seems though we could look forward to uh, you know, learning more about this, but particularly uh, getting more standardized regimens for, for treatment uh, of myocarditis. Really appreciate your time uh, Thank you. with us today, Les, and uh, look forward to some more discussions yeah. on this uh, in the future. It's great being with you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.